0: I want to warn you that in today's episode of the podcast, we are going to be covering subjects such as child abuse, torture, and rape. Today's guest at the age of 13 years old was groomed online, sat on her mobile phone and the internet. She made a friend with a stranger. And after nearly eight months, she decided to meet that stranger thinking it was a friend. On January the 1st, she then went outside, walked down the street, met the stranger, And he bundled her into his car and submitted her to four days of torture and rape and even streamed it online until thank goodness the fbi found her and saved her there's so much to discuss on this podcast especially if you're a parent and you have kids so please give it your closest attention So Alicia Kozak tonight, Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for taking the time to come and join us. Uh, You've got a really fascinating story and one that I think that the audience here in the Middle East and in the UK and some parts of the US will really, um, I'm not going to say enjoy because I don't think they're going to enjoy hearing the first part of the story. But hopefully, hope is a word that we can use and progression is maybe something we can think about for the future but thank you very much for coming on the show and I I don't I, I don't want to tell everyone your story I'd just rather that you told your story yourself and so please can you just take me back to when you were 13 years old and what you went through in those early parts of your teenage years
1: absolutely first thanks so much for having me really excited to be here as well and hope is the key to share hope and to spread hope so that's what this is all about sad stories, brokenhearted stories, really terrible situations, but there's always so much hope that can be found and we always have to hold on to hope. And that is how I survived my situation. When I was 13, so going back to being 13, this was back in 2001, 2002, and it was really the start of the internet being in people's homes. So it was so different than it is today. It was very slow dial-up and if your mom picked up the phone, you were thrown off the internet, you would take, it would take like, I don't know, a week to download something sometimes, like one song. It was it was really slow and very different, but the most important or the most unique thing is that it had to be plugged in at all times through the wall. And now we can have the internet anywhere. We have access to the internet, truly almost anywhere. So just a very different world than it was back then. And I can remember that the internet just being so new. And because of that, there was no internet safety education and there were no stories like mine. So my parents didn't really have anything to go off of in terms of any safety information. It was basically stranger danger. And stranger danger doesn't work in the online world. That's not a conversation that works there because everybody's a stranger before you get to meet them. And you feel really connected to people very quickly online and open up sometimes more easily. And back then, again, people did not know the dangers. I was one of the last of my friends to get online. I can remember my friends, they were, I was in middle school and they were all online all the time and they no longer wanted to go to the park or the mall or the movies. Again, it had to be plugged in. So if you wanted to be online, you had to be plugged into the wall. And so in order to maintain those friendships, I broke down, got a screen name, got online and started talking to my friends from school. And what I discovered is that it was sort of like a middle school utopia. This was before kids really realized that they could even cyberbully. So it was the popular kids talking to the not so popular kids. And it just seemed like a really great place. Now, me, I was, and so many children are, I was a very shy child. It's funny because now I'm, I, I do all of this, but I was so shy as a child. I was the kid who didn't raise their hand in class or like order food on the phone. I was always very nervous and just very shy. And online, I didn't feel like I had those barriers that I had to break through. I felt that I could be more comfortable with myself. So for me, being online was just a very comfortable place with my friends. And I started to spend a lot of time online because that's where my friends were. And I was in a chat room, which was a very simple sort of thing that people don't really do as much anymore. But chat rooms had people from all over the place in it. You could have your friends and have a private chat room or you could have a public chat room and it could be about a topic or something that people want to talk about. And I was in a chat room and somebody messaged me who I thought was a boy around my own age. And what I didn't know was he had immediately begun to groom me. And grooming is really quite simple. People really try to complicate it, but it's just pretending to be a child's friend and telling them what they want to hear versus what they need to hear. So kids will hear so much from their parents and their teachers, do this, do that, do your homework, clean your room, blah, 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 blah. And it's not things that kids necessarily wanna hear but there's somebody there who makes them feel everything that they don't feel every single day. And it's so hard to be a kid. Kids don't feel like they're beautiful enough, handsome enough, fit enough, wealthy enough, this enough, that enough. And a predator's goal is to make them feel like they are enough and that they are understood. And that now this is the person who connects with them the most. And a predator can do this over a period of months or even years. And for me, he spoke to me for about eight months, which was a substantial time in the life of a 13 year old and of course i wasn't aware of this it was a very subtle almost seduction if you will you don't notice the red flags because grooming in many ways feels good because it's everything that you want and like i said it's so hard to be a kid and you can be surrounded by all the love in the world i come from a really nice family i grew up in a nice neighborhood. And I am i was the kind of kid who people would say things like this don't happen to from the kind of family that people say things like this don't happen to. You. But the fact is that anybody, anybody can be a victim because what a predator is looking for first and foremost is vulnerability and everybody is vulnerable, but most especially children. So he talked to me for about eight months and I liken grooming to sort of like brainwashing in that this person takes you apart and they put you back together and you look like you and you sound like you but your brain is functioning sort of differently now and you're just you're different somehow because you've connected so closely to this person and i can remember it was new year's day 2002 and we were sitting down to a family meal we were welcoming in the new year and i can remember it being a, a beautiful night with my family and i hold on to that moment it was really our last few minutes of grace before before the nightmare started and before everything changed but I asked my mother if I could be excused from the table and she said yes of course and when I talk to kids I always tell them if you feel like you have to lie to somebody and especially your parents you really need to think through what you're doing because there's a good chance that you're doing something that is dangerous or just really not making a good decision and that's what this was this was a really bad decision this was a huge mistake. But kids make mistakes, and adults should never take advantage of or exploit those mistakes. So instead of going upstairs to lie down, I slipped out of the front door, past the Christmas tree that was still up, and out into the coldest, darkest, iciest night that you can imagine. Now, like I said, grooming makes you sort of different, and here's kind of a case in point. I was a child who was scared of the dark, I hated the cold with a passion, and I never went outside alone after dark. Yet on this night, I walked out of the front door between dinner and dessert, into this cold, dark, icy night. I left the door open just a little bit because I was coming right back through it and I didn't take my coat with me. I was just popping outside to say hello. Like I said, that's a really horrible, horrible decision, but kids don't always make the right decisions. I walked up the street just about a block or so. And if I turned around, I could still see my house. So I felt felt safe. This was my neighborhood and there was nobody there. It was completely quiet. And in that quiet moment, my intuition spoke up this little voice that everybody I, I ask you, I, I plead with you to listen to your intuition. It's there for a reason. It said, Alicia, go home. This is dangerous. Turn around right now. And I heard it and I listened and I went to turn around, but then I heard my name being called. And next thing I knew I was in a car and this man was squeezing my hand so tightly that I thought it was broken. And he was barking commands at me. Be good. Be quiet. Trunks cleaned out for you. And I immediately knew that This person had control of my life; that I no longer was in control of my life, and that everything I did, said, thought, felt, could be my last. So he began to drive, and he drove about five hours from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to Virginia, where he held me captive in his basement dungeon, and I was raped, and beaten, and tortured. He kept me chained to the floor by a locking dog collar. He broke my nose in one of the struggles, and he didn't feed me. I was miraculously rescued, and I use that word miraculous because I don't have another word for it. While he had me, he had live-streamed what he was doing to me to other people online, and somebody saw this, and they came forward. They were able to recognize the little girl in this horrendous video as the little girl in the missing poster and contacted law enforcement, which led to where I was being held captive. It was really essentially one predator coming forward about another. And I'm so lucky to be here. And I I hear that a lot. People say that to me a lot. They say, you're so lucky. And yes, I am so, so lucky. And I quickly learned that so many other children do not get that chance of rescue, that so many other people are suffering right now as we are sitting here. And I felt that I had been given a gift, not the gift of what had happened to me. That was in no way, shape or form a gift but the gift of a second chance, the gift of life. And I wanted to dedicate and I chose to dedicate my life to protecting others after that because I had been given something and I'd, I, I felt like I had not quite this responsibility, but kind of this, but I had this knowledge. I had this inner look into this world and I knew that this was going to get worse. I knew that this was going to grow. And so that was when I began sharing my story.
0: Okay. I don't even know where to start with this. You, you're right, kids make mistakes. So no one should be given a tough time for that. Grooming, it's talked about quite loosely nowadays, isn't it? It's talked about as a, a term that happens with great frequency, but not just on the internet in other, other ways as well. And the way that you describe uh, grooming is quite, quite simple and matter of fact. Does it do you think it works that way for every kid or do you think kids are wiser nowadays to it or do you think that the same thing will go on ad infinitum without awareness just because it's an easy thing for an adult to do
1: It depends on it depends on the child it depends on the scenario it depends on the vulnerability it depends on if that child has learned about internet safety or if their parent just gave them a device and was like here go run wild It really depends but grooming absolutely still happens child abduction still happens but what is really quite prevalent now is that children are taking images of themselves or videos of themselves and they're sharing them and they're creating child sexual abuse material and that is then being shared online and they may be sharing it because they are trying to connect with this person sometimes in a grooming process what this person is really trying to do as well is they're trying to break down those barriers and those boundaries And so they'll say something like, hey, you're really beautiful. You look so much older than 12 years old. Can you send me a a picture of you? So maybe the child will send like an innocent photo. And then they'll say, oh, wow, your body looks incredible. Can you show me? And then they'll lead them into eventually sending a photo of themselves that their body is exposed. And the thing with that is that you may think that a child would be wise enough not to do that. Well, something that a predator can threaten is abandonment. And say okay well now if you don't send me this i you know i don't trust you i am going to leave you i don't think that you're really my friend look at everything i've talked to you like you know this friendship's over and if this is a long-term grooming process and this child is now connected to this person and it really is it's almost a trauma bond that this child trusts this person completely and that they are the only person who understands them in the world and the person who makes them feel like they are not alone. But the other thing that happens is if that child does send that photo, if that person is able to break down that barrier, get that child to send that photo, now that person in many ways owns them and controls them and can threaten them to send images. And you might think again, oh, that child's just gonna go tell their parent and this will be solved. No, because the big threat is that they are going to, their parents are going to learn about it. That this person is going to tell their parents, they're going to tell people at school, whatever it might be. And now that child is trapped. And I've worked with a lot of cases like that and kids who they're at the mall with their family and they're messaged by the predator and the predator says, go to the bathroom right now. And if you don't, I'm going to send this and this and this to your school. And that child does it because they, they're terrified. They're trapped and you don't necessarily need to be trapped in chains or locked in a basement to be held captive. You can be held captive by fear.
0: So. We know that 500,000 kids in the United States every year are sexually trafficked. Um, We've had guests on the show previously working on behalf of Homeland Security gave us lots of uh, important data around this. But the, the interesting stat for me was how the vast majority of them come from either impoverished families or broken down families or in the foster system you you weren't you were from a loving family you as people would say you wouldn't be typically the kind of person that you would expect well at least after knowing those types of st- statistics and if you could be vulnerable then i guess everybody else could tell tell me how it felt you know you're 13 years old, and we've all been 13. I know, but when you're 13 years old, you're going through puberty and stuff. You're just starting kind of like your teenage part of your life, where you're a tiny weeny bit more independent than normal, but you're you know you're not a full fledged teenager just yet. To me, being in the car is, is as you're being taken away, sheer panic. How did you? How did you kind of like deal with that in the moment? Did you did you really process it or was it was it you know you were just on a high state of alert? You were in panic mode. You you couldn't think more than the next few minutes ahead and that's literally all you had to go with. Just just elaborate on that for me, please.
1: It's amazing what it's amazing what your brain will jump into and the survival techniques that you have in you the instinct that is already there that you don't know that you have until you have to use it. And I would very it would vary between being completely just terrified and not of course having any idea of what to do, but then also these moments, these flashes of okay, there's a call box. And if I can get to that call box, then maybe I can call my mother and I can alert her in some way that would alert her, but not this person. Or just really looking for those chances of, chances of escape at the same time knowing that if you take those chances, it may be the only chance that you have. And if it fails, your life it may be over, so you really have to think through very clearly. It's interesting because people will say they'll say what they would do if they were in a situation like that, be it they were held captive or they were being held hostage in a car, whatever it might be, where they're like, okay, this is what I would have done. And you don't know what you would do until you were in that situation. But the important thing to remember is that whatever that person did was exactly what they needed to do to survive, and they survived, so they are brave, and all of their decisions were a a decision surrounded by bravery, but that sort of fear it's paralyzing and your brain still sort of functions, but it doesn't. And time slows down and speeds up. There's no word for it. People will often use the word surreal in a traumatic situation. And that's the thing. It doesn't feel real, even looking back at it and talking about my story. And even though it was very real and it happened to me and I remember it horribly that in some ways it feels like it didn't that it is surreal that something like that can't actually happen and our brain does that to protect us
0: you have an enormous amount of composure and i'm sure you've shared this story many times and are able to to give it away in the way that you do with, with matter of fact type of approach. when well, I'm sure that many people listening right now are sitting there with their jaws on the floor in horror, just trying to imagine for one minute what you went through. And I'm pretty sure that with other people that have experienced longer periods of kept being kept in, uh, in, um, uh, kept in, what's the word chains. kept in chains? Yeah. Chains. Okay. Just imprisoned essentially there's because there's many stories Heinz Harold Fritz saw again you know did something over here in or over in Europe sorry and that was well documented and other people have done the same. You must have huge amounts of empathy for anyone that went through this type of experience that you did for but for a much longer period of time because you get it, you know, where other people couldn't imagine it you can. Can can you tell me, did you while you were there, did you ever think why? Why 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 is? Why did he choose me or why is he doing this?
1: That is a great question. I, Why wasn't really that important at the moment? It was more how. How am I going to get out of this? How am I going to survive? What am I going to do next? Because at some point I realized one of my survival instincts, and I think this may have been because it was after 9-11 and there was a lot of conversation around hostage situations. And even though I wasn't paying attention to it probably, some of it seeped into my mind. And something that popped into my head is he sees you as an object because you can only do something like this to to an object, something that you don't see as a person, something that you can't really respect as a human being. So try to humanize yourself, make it harder for him to kill you. And one of the horrible things that I realized is that if I fought too much, if I was, I don't have another way to say this, but of no use to him, then he was going to kill me more quickly. So I did whatever I had to do to survive, no matter how humiliating or brutal or painful or disgusting, I did it because I knew that that was my only chance of survival was to try to stay alive as long as possible. I had tried to escape and I failed. He was so much bigger than me, so much stronger. And I'm lucky that that wasn't the time that he decided to to kill me. So after that moment, it was every, every step mattered, every breath mattered. And I was grateful i had experienced such gratitude for breathing and for being alive and just getting to that next moment and trying to think through everything so it was less of why after i was rescued it became very much a an idea and a question of why which is why i went to get my master's in forensic psychology i sort of had this experience and had spent this time with a predator and being a victim and had this inside view into it, but to have that sort of textbook background and have an understanding of it and a better understanding of the predatory behavior.
0: Well, as you went through your teenage years from the age of 14 through 16, 17, what was your opinion of boys and men?
1: Well, when it comes to trust and when it comes to intimacy and it comes to closeness and it comes to relationships, it's really difficult or it can be really difficult. I don't want to speak for everybody, but it can be really difficult after something like this. But one of the things that you first have to do is learn to trust yourself. And you have to learn to trust yourself in that you can make good decisions. And I feared that for a really long time that I made this horrible decision. I made this horrible mistake. Could I do something like that again? Could I trust the wrong person again? So it wasn't that I was distrustful of others. It was sort of like I had to learn to have confidence and faith in myself. And then I had to learn to trust the world and that the world wasn't out there and not everybody, and not just men or boys, but women do horrible things too, of course, but that the world is a beautiful place. And while there are bad people in it, the good far outnumbers the bad. And then when it came to relationships, I had to do both. I had to learn to trust myself and trust others. And it took me a long time to learn that rape is about power and control and what happened to me has nothing to do with love and respect and intimacy. That rape is about power control and, and love never is. That love is something that is beautiful and amazing and even teenage love and, and like the silly love and the silly like you're my Valentine love, right? Like the cute little high school love. It's still so precious and so important and it can be really difficult. After some like time I had a lot of difficulty with touch where I would be thrown into a flashback because some, a guy would touch my shoulder or pull me in close or wrap his arm around me at the movie theater and I would go into a flashback and it was really kind of embarrassing. The other part that is an important conversation to have is for me because my case was so widespread because it was so well-known, I became well-known and I had a couple guys who wanted to date me for that which was very strange. But I didn't have the choice of telling these guys who I was. They already kind of knew, or it was a simple Google and a little bit of research and they would know. So I never really had the choice to say, oh, I'm going to tell you my story now. They already had ideas about it and it's your story. So if it's not a case like that, or even if it is, you don't ever have to tell your story to anybody other than law enforcement and the judge. It is your story and you can keep it. And tell it whenever you want. That is your freedom. But it can be helpful to tell this person that you have been through a traumatic situation, so that when they do wrap their arms around you and you freak out, that you don't feel like you're hurting them or you're guilty of something or that you did something wrong to make them feel bad. That they understand it. That you are are just more sensitive to things like that. It doesn't make you weak. It doesn't make you broken. It Mm -hmm. makes you just have another thing that you have to carry.
0: Did did you do anything particular to heal? Did you go to retreats? Did you find solace in other people that other victims? Did you, you know, meditate? Did you go for counseling? Was there any any process that you went through? And and how long do you think it really took you to heal, if at all you are?
1: I did go to counseling and it was beneficial for a bit. And then it just became it felt like I was telling my story for I don't know it just it didn't work for me I'd come across a couple counselors that were really great and that they quit and then I'd come across a couple counselors who were really horrible and that they weren't trained in this specific area but one thing and the thing that helped me to heal the most was sharing my story I started sharing my story I created the Alicia Project at the age of 14 and I gave what happened to me a purpose. And that's not to say that that's how everybody should heal. I get worried about that now because it seems like on the path to healing advocacy is a part of that. And it doesn't have to be. In fact, that's a really difficult choice to make. And it's one that I made sort of blindly because I was 14 and I had this sort of rush and this feeling that I needed to, to save all the kids and save my friends. And that I didn't, like I said, I've been given this gift of life and that I didn't want to waste it. But that people are now pushed into that, that when something happens, that it's your responsibility to make a difference. And it's not. Your responsibility is to take care of yourself and to heal. And that's first and foremost. And for me, advocacy did help to give this a purpose, to give to put my pain almost in like put my pain almost in like a little box and to give it to somebody else sometimes. And it was it was for a good reason. And when I started speaking out, this was before internet safety was any sort of conversation. So I was one of the first people, if not one of the very first people to go out and speak about this. And it was really hard and really scary at first, but I had received such feedback, such amazing feedback. And my goal had always been to save one child and one family from going through this. And I, I know that I have done that so I can check that off of the list. I know that I've done that. And that is an incredibly healing.
0: right? I, I want to talk about the future uh, uh, f- uh, after that, what happened and then and what you're successful at doing now. But just before I do, I just like to talk about your mum and dad. I, I'm, I'm a parent, so I, I try and I try and think about it from that perspective. And I'm sure that, that they will be able to tell their side of the story um, in, in a bit more detail. But how did they cope? How did they how did they live with what happened? Because they must have felt incredibly guilty themselves for no no reason, but they must have had gone through all kinds of incredibly difficult emotions during that period. So so how did they cope?
1: It was very hard in the early days after I was rescued, because we were all trying to pretend to be strong for each other, because at some point you realize that if you're crying, they're going to cry. Because parents, it it is true that if their child is hurting, they're hurting. And so sometimes the child feels like they have to be strong and to pretend they're okay. But at the same time, everybody is just sort of putting on a happy face and it's fake. And soon those walls break down and you really, you fall into each other. And we were in really a, you know, a war-torn world that, and we were shell-shocked wandering through it. Because this hadn't happened before, and I was the first known case of online abduction that the community didn't really, there was so much victim blaming. There was outrageous amounts of victim blaming from the media, from the community, from people in our family even. And so we were really it. We had to connect with each other. And it was difficult. My mother, she had experienced a lot of guilt for a while. And then at some point she realized she did all that she could and she did nothing wrong. That somebody really bad came in and did something horrible and it's not her fault. And then my dad, he still struggles quite a bit with guilt because he feels that he should have known something. He should have done something that this should not have happened and that he should have been able to protect me. And it doesn't matter what I've said to him, how I've explained it, he feels like he failed and it's a heartbreaking thing
0: yeah I can just I can just imagine that you know, ne- never really getting over it you know you're, you're his baby girl aren't you at the end of the day so you know uh, any daddy uh, would be able to find some um, empathy with that situation okay let's talk about the great stuff that you've done since because to for you to have been through what you've been through and to turn it around and go on to forge uh, so much support and and guidance for other kids out there but also do some great other things too along the way so talk to us about that you you went and did a master's in forensic psychology that's right and that was because of your fascination with understanding why people behave the way they behave and get it get into that is that the reason
1: it was a combination of things. It was that I had come across a couple of therapists who, like I said, were not trained and I wanted to really understand this from all angles. And that was a big part of it too, is that in order to fight something, in order to be the best warrior that you can be, I feel like you really need to be able to understand this from all angles and certainly not have empathy for the predator. That's not the word that I'm saying, but to be able to try to understand a little bit of what how it worked how they made those decisions those very sick awful horrible monstrous decisions and it's interesting because through that program it's something that I had learned so if you read through my old interviews or you listen to my old interviews I would only call him monster you will never hear me say his name and I appreciate you for not going and saying his name because it's something that I don't do and that's because he's not important as a person uh, in in the story uh, as, as an individual with a name but So I would call him monster. And then I realized that, okay, monsters are bigger and stronger and maybe they're supernatural. And sometimes they win. And to a child, yes, this person is all of those things. They're bigger and scarier and have more control and more power and almost seem like a supernatural being. But to somebody who's fighting this, you can't see them that way. You have to see them as human. You have to see them as fallible. You have to see them as as breakable and understandable and not a supernatural creature that has special powers that can do special horrible things.
0: Yeah. Doesn't deserve a name. Absolutely right. Okay. So to me, I've seen you I mean, I saw you on Oprah, I've watched a whole bunch of stuff on you to do my research on you. I know that you've been speaking to kids for a long time now, going into schools and stuff like that. Have you have you specifically targeted kids or have you taken time to specifically target parents as well?
1: I have So I've spoken to groups of everybody uh, because this can impact anybody. So I speak to kids of all ages, the youngest being first graders, which was really interesting. And then of course, all the way into college and university as well as parents, teachers, law enforcement. I've trained the FBI. I speak to a lot of government officials. I speak at a lot of corporations. So I will speak really anywhere because this impacts everybody, if you're a child or you're an adult. Adults are making so many mistakes online too, especially because with the world of online dating and the draw of things like OnlyFans and this sort of world where people are are so open and, and so hungry for attention that it's dangerous for all ages. And so speaking to all groups.
0: You established the Alicia Project.
1: Yeah, so the Alicia Project I started when I was 14 years old. And the reason I called it the Alicia Project is because I I really didn't know what to call it. It was really a crazy sort of thing. It wasn't like naming a dog or something, uh, which is the only thing I could think of that I had named at that point other than like maybe a doll. But um, it was because like a corporation sounded like it was going to be people on towers and pointing at charts and things. And a foundation sounded like I was going to be giving people money which I didn't have to give. So projects, oh, that's something you do in school. And that was the only thing I could really liken it to. And when I started it, I wouldn't include my name. I didn't tell people my name. It was very sort of like I'd come in and I was almost like a very private person, even though I was sharing such detailed private information, I myself wasn't looking for anybody to connect with me as a person. And now it's really grown into becoming much more of a public figure. And I used to get recognized all the time for being the victim. And that was really difficult. People would come up to me and say, hey, aren't you that girl who got kidnapped? Aren't you that girl who this? And aren't you that girl who that? And even when I would meet new people or we would have that first day of class where you had to introduce yourself, people would be like, oh, aren't you her? And it was really terrible. But then I started to get recognized for my advocacy and I it shifted everything. And that's something that I don't mind anywhere near as much or at all. It's a really beautiful thing to know that I am reaching people through through podcasts like yours and television shows and presentations and that that's really what it's all about. It's not just about raising awareness because you can talk an issue to death. We see that all the time, but it's about making actual real changes in the world that will impact and make a positive impact i think you and have one of the ways that i've done i'm oh, sorry
0: i think you have to inspire people to take action i think people can hear a lot of stuff they can watch a lot of stuff but you have to get people to the point point. and, and I've, I've experienced that myself many times have i have i heard or, or watched something and i'm like yeah that's really important and done nothing with it but there are times also when literally i've sat there going I I need to do something about it. You like you're compelled to want to do something about it. And if you can get people to that place where you can compel them, you can inspire them to lift their finger and take some action. That that's that's when it has the truest impact. Would you agree?
1: Absolutely. And it doesn't it doesn't start with hashtags. And those are good too for raising awareness. It's not about social media posts as much as it is about making changes in your own life and in your own community. People tend to look at the really big picture. They look at fighting something like online predation or human trafficking and they think, okay, how do we end this entirely? Well, that's a really difficult conversation to have. It's such a big problem. Okay, how do I end it? How do I protect my children? Okay, how do I protect my children's friends? How do I protect my children's peers? How do I protect my community? start small and then grow in. And if we all did that, we would be able to make such a big difference.
0: Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. Okay. Talk to me about becoming an actress. How did that happen? Why, what, what, what was the driver there? And, and also while I think about that becoming an actress, obviously you have to play somebody else and you've lived through some traumatic experiences that, that are unimaginable. So can, can you lean on those experiences or have you lent on any of those experiences in roles that you've performed?
1: Yeah. So with acting, so before I was kidnapped, I had wanted to be like an actress and model, like so many young girls. And I, after it happened, I felt like it was something I couldn't do for a whole number of reasons. Part of it was the victim blaming. And people had literally said, oh, well, you had made this happen so that you'd get famous. People said the most heinous things. And even though they didn't mean anything, it still hurt me. And it made me scared to pursue that. So Over the years, I sort of just was like, you know what? I'm gonna go do it for fun. And I had been so well known as this victim and this advocate, and on so many stages and so behind so many cameras. And I thought, what if I do something that's fun and exciting and sort of uh, just a new journey? So I started to take acting classes and and go down that route, and it was really fun. And I didn't mean for it to amount to anything, and it, it. didn't amount to anything other than some really great experiences and it doesn't need to because that's really all that matters that I had some great experiences and that's what the world is all about but that I did I was able to use my experience to tap into certain certain roles I I played a couple roles where I definitely had to to experience that empathy or not even to go into my own past because that's really difficult but to go into the stories that I've heard or the times that I've sat with other survivors and have cried with them because of their healing journey and to go through that with them but the acting thing was really just so much fun and it was just something different because I had been doing this now for 18 years it's a really long time and I love what I do but I wanted to also kind of have fun
0: you are such a bright and happy soul. Um, and I wasn't expecting that, if I'm really honest. You really, really are. It's like a, a light beaming through here with your big smile and your blue eyes. And you're just, you, you know, you're, you're so, so positive And it's genuinely a, a real pleasure. I wasn't expecting that at all.
1: That means the world to me. Thank you. And no, it is. I, I really appreciate that, that we all have the ability to be the light in the world. And I try to be really happy. I've actually had people on interviews they'll leave comments and things like, oh, she's not really hurting, she's smiling. And that's something else that happens to victims, that there's a point where people don't understand that they smile, that it's wrong to have fun or it's wrong to be happy and it's not. If you can be happy and laugh the moment after you're rescued, go, laugh, laugh as much as you can. Just smile, smiling is the, the best thing that you can do. And not that you put on a fake smile and not that you try to, to force yourself to smile, but if you're feeling joy, don't ever take that away from yourself and don't take it away from others.
0: Very powerful. Okay, just before we finish, five tips we can give parents and kids right now, okay, to uh, avoid the kind of problems that they could face. So let's let's talk about teenagers. Um, five tips we could give them. I want to put you on the spot with this. How can, how, how can we do that right now?
1: Absolutely. So first, you must talk to your children. Uh About online dangers. I know it seems uncomfortable at times, but you have uncomfortable conversations with your kids all the time. This is just another uncomfortable conversation. You have to have this conversation. You have to have it early. And not that you have to have it every day, but you have to have it as your child grows because you may have, oh my gosh, I've seen children in strollers watching YouTube videos. Like kids are really young on these devices now. But as they get older and they have more more freedom online, you need to continue to have those conversations. And the conversation that you would have with a young child as compared to a teenager would be different. The other thing you have to do is you have to educate yourself. Sit down and go through everything you can about online safety and the different applications. I know it's daunting. I know that there is an endless supply and it is a rabbit hole of information, but you need to sit down and do it. The next thing is to monitor what your children are doing online. And I know that that may seem, okay, well, I'm invading their privacy. And it's funny because when I started speaking out and I was a kid and I would talk about that, I would, my mom was always in the audience too. I'd be like, oh, kids deserve their privacy and blah, 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 blah. And now I sound like my mom and I'm like, who pays the bill? Like I, I say all the things my mom said, but it's so true is that you have to protect your child and it's not about getting your child into trouble. It's about just keeping them safe. So you want to be able to pick up their device at any time and be able to go through it so that when they come home from school, when they do this, when they do that, that you have the passwords, that you have the information. The next thing that is that you need to play with them. So go and say, hey, what is TikTok? Heck, make a video with them. Make it fun. Make it playful because they're doing these things because they enjoy it, because it's fun. Try to be a part of that with them. But if they're also like, mom, go away or dad, go away. Don't be offended by that. And then when you're talking to them about online safety, I've had people who say, oh, I'm, I'm really scared to talk to my child about that because I don't want to terrify them. I don't want to make it so that they can't function in the world. And to talk about online safety and human trafficking, it's not to make them fearful. Yes, a healthy dose of fear is necessary. If you don't know what is dangerous, you can't protect yourself from it. You can I mean, think about the fact I'm I'm looking at a tree outside of my window right now, and it looks like super fun to climb. I know that if I climb that, which would be hysterical to watch, I know that if I fall down, I'm going to get hurt. If your kids don't know if they're climb that tree they fall down, they're going to get hurt, they're going to make mistakes and they're not going to pay as much attention. So it's not about fear, it's about empowerment. And when it comes down to it, they make the decisions online. They decide if they talk to that person or send that photo or block that person or meet that person or report to that person, it's all really within their realm and their choice. And if they want to do something, they're going to find a way to do it. So you want to empower them and give them options and the choices to make. And then the next and most important thing is to let them know that they can come to you with absolutely anything at all. When I do my presentations, I ask kids, hey, if you came across this, or if somebody threatened you, Would you tell your mom or your dad or your guardian? And so many of them say no. And it's so heartbreaking that they would rather try to solve it themselves. And that's because they're scared they're going to get into trouble, which is just an innate fear that children have with their parents. But their biggest fear is that you're going to take away their gaming system where yes, predators are. You're going to take away their cell phone. You're going to take away any device that they have and that you're going to take away their connection to the outside world and their friend and and literally in some ways their universe. So you need to let your child know that they can come to you with absolutely anything at all. And it's not that they're in trouble. It's not that you'll be disappointed and it's not that you're angry. In fact, you are proud of them for coming forward. You are respectful of that and you think it's great, but that you can sit down. And the point is that you solve the problem together and that they're not in trouble. Again, you are proud of them because this is happening to them and they need to know that they can ask for help.
0: Wow. Alicia, I salute your courage, your bravery, your positivity, your big smile on your face for sharing such uh, a difficult experience and also the journey afterwards with us today on the show. I can't thank you enough. For, for Honestly, uh, you're, you're you're an absolute blessing. Continue to inspire because you inspired me.
1: Thank you. That again means so much and it's Such a joy to talk to you I hope that someday I can meet you in person if there's any opportunity to travel anywhere at this point, but if there's any opportunities to do any presentations in your part of the world in person or over zoom in person would be better I would love to visit, please let me know and if anybody listening to this thinks that that would be a really great idea I would love that so please I'm always here. I don't just do these to tell my story it's to really to make an impact but to also reach as many people as possible. And I'm always looking to do more. So please don't hesitate to reach out.
0: How do people, if they wanted to follow your work, how do people get hold of you?
1: Sure. If you go to my website, it's www.alishacozack.com. And then it's at, it's Alicia Kozak. So at ITS, Alicia Kozak on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, as well as TikTok. I've recently joined the world, if it's been a few months now, but TikTok and have found that it's been really amazing i have been able to share videos on there that have been seen by six million people and one thing that i have started to do is to create videos uh, not just safety tips and motivational things but a lot of missing person stories and it's been really amazing to have that tiktok community sharing and telling so if you are on tiktok and you have the ability to follow me please do. And all these other platforms, I would love to hear from you. This is all about connecting and community. And I know I we'll talk about online safety and connecting with strangers, but this is different. So please don't hesitate to reach out. I would love to hear from anybody who'd like to talk to me.
0: That's awesome. Excellent stuff. And lastly, guys, if you do reach out, which I urge you to say that you've found, you listened to the podcast, you heard a story on the, on the Spencer Lodge podcast, and she'll make contact with you for sure. Alicia, thank you so much for your time. It's a blessing to have you on the show. I really appreciated it. Take care and see you soon.
1: Thank you so much for having
0: me. Alicia Kozak, positive, friendly, encouraging, inspiring, motivational, all of the words you wouldn't necessarily associate with someone who'd been through such a traumatic experience as this. Just think for a second what a 13 years old she went through to be raped, tortured, kidnapped, all in the space of four days, the horrors of a lifetime times 10. If you have kids or you're younger and you're listening to this right now, please, please take care. The internet has lots of benefits and lots of joys, but there's a mean and nasty place out there as well. And we have to protect our kids from that. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi Events and Najahi Tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word, and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world-leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys. people like this and they bring them in and they run events and from those events we go and we learn from these incredible people on top of that they launched the najahi tribe recently where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers that literally you can join become a member of take advantage of a training from all of these different people like real experts in their field I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, (laughs) hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I Events.com. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast. If you're listening on iTunes, I'd really appreciate it if you give me a five-star rating and leave some positive comments or over on any other podcasting app, please give us a follow, leave positive comments. The more comments that we receive, the more ratings we receive, the more this reaches other people and they get the benefit of it too. So I'm hoping and praying you'll support me. Take care folks and I'll see you on the next episode.